Hey, if you've ever spent, oh, I don't know, five minutes in a church, you know that it can be a wonderful thing. But you also know that it can be one of the most challenging things in your life. You need tools on how to relate to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what Paul gives us in Romans chapter 12. Welcome to the deep dive. Okay, so remember last week I said that your vertical relationship with God is fixed in Christ Jesus and there's no condemnation, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There's no separation, Romans chapter 8, verse 39. And that frees up all this energy, all this energy of your heart to make sure that your horizontal relationships with the church are doing well and with other people outside the church are doing well. That's totally true. But friends, this is where the rubber hits the road because if we're all honest, if we've ever been part of a church, we know that sometimes the church can have a lot of friction, a lot of problems, a lot of challenges. Relationships can go poorly, quickly. You never know. And you got to learn how to do one of the hardest things in life. Live with people. <laughs> this is Romans, and we're going to get into how Paul pastors us through that process. Let's pray, and we'll open the scriptures. Father, thank you for this chance to hear your word. Speak to us. Change us. Help us to see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's hit the book of Romans. Yes, 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 yes. It is Deep Dive, ladies and gentlemen. The 25th episode of season five. Uh, like, subscribe, share the content. Help us get this content further and farther. Further and farther. Those are synonyms. But help us do it. Okay, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. We talked about this last week. This great therefore of Romans chapter 12, verse 1. By the mercies of God, offer your bodies. And when it comes to offering our bodies, we have to remember that offering our bodies means that we are a living sacrifice, which means that we're going to live through sacrificial systems in which uh, seasons in which we allow our minds to be transformed and renewed uh, so that we can have our bodies do things that our mind directs it to do according to the will of word of God. And then we can submit our wills ever more so to the desires of God. You do not have to be a slave to your will you can transform your will. How? Through the power of God working in you in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, Scripture, and prayer. That's what last week was all about. And this week we want to continue to talk about what sanctification looks like. The great therefore of Romans chapter 12. 11 chapters of doctrine. And then four chapters of uh, implication or, uh, yeah, practicality. And then one final chapter, Romans 16, of greetings. So, let's take a look at something. You ever think about the fact that the cross is an intentional shape that God put his son Jesus on? You think about the ways that God could have waited for Jesus to come at a certain time and execution would have been different. You know, the electric chair, heaven forbid, or the lethal injection, or, you know, the um, uh, what guillotine, so on and so forth. All these other ways. But no, God waits for the cross. One of the most brutal if not the most brutal, most painful ways to die in human history. It was a sometimes four-day-long torture regimen. And you think about the shape of the cross, and the shape of the cross is intentional. It's vertical and it's horizontal. And the two greatest commandments that Jesus taught us, the Bible teaches us, that Jesus said that the whole Bible is about, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, vertical. And love your neighbor as you love yourself, horizontal. And so I want to put this up here on the screen. This is a picture of the cross. 
And Matthew 22, when Jesus asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, there's two, actually. There's two. And understand that Jesus was asked for one, and he gives two. You know, you never get a straight answer from Jesus because Jesus is always trying to shape us. He is. He will always try to shape us because he loves us. And so when the question is asked, what's the greatest commandment? He's like, no, no, no. There's two. And is love the Lord and love your neighbor. And those both are the summation of the law and the prophets, Matthew 2, 20, uh, 22, 37 through 40. And I want to put this on the screen because when it talks about our love for God and our love for our neighbor, it really is in the shape of the cross. Love for God goes upward vertically. We, we, that vertical relationship is solved. It doesn't mean that we ignore God. It doesn't mean that we never talk to God. Of course not. We pray, we worship, we read his word, we enjoy his presence. But then that horizontal uh, reality, that, that's where the rubber hits the road if you're going to do church, if you're going to be a Christian, because anybody— Anybody, and a lot of people do this, can have this kind of personal relationship with God. You know, I, even the phrase, I have a personal relationship with God. It kind of bugs me as a pastor because what it does, it becomes this idea of you and God, and he's kind of like your spiritual iPhone. He's kind of like your spiritual iPhone. You know, your iPhone will never confront you. Your iPhone will never challenge you. Your iPhone will never like say, hey, you're probably doing something bad, right? It never will. In fact, the iPhone, sometimes the filter makes your face clearer or cleaner. Sometimes it actually, and we use this device to post stuff on social media to make ourselves look better than we really are. This, unfortunately, is a symbol today of what many Christians refer to as their personal Lord and Savior, Jesus. Because he's personal. He goes with me. He's my I, Jesus. He's, he's what I want him to be. He teaches me what he wants me to know. And I believe what I believe because of what I believe he believes. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? It's a very personal, kind of like individualistic version of Christianity. And can I tell you, it's not biblical. It's totally not biblical. And you need to watch out for this. It is a growing, increasing um, trend in the American church, particularly, where we have taken Jesus off the throne of heaven and earth, off of you know his headship over a body, a community of faith, and we have put him in our back pockets right next to our iPhones and said, this is the Jesus that I'm going to worship and serve, the Jesus that never confronts me, the Jesus that never challenges me, the Jesus that never holds me accountable to laying down my life for other people, the Jesus that I have shaped in my own image. And that must never be. And this is not Christianity. This is not Christianity. When I ask people to say the sinner's prayer, I never, I, I never lead them to say, hey, ask Jesus into your heart. No, we don't ask Jesus into our heart. We surrender our lives to Jesus. And so I do do the sinner's prayer. And I know a lot of Christians have a problem with the sinner's prayer. But let me tell you, sometimes people just need to vocalize. They need to verbalize commitment to Christ. And it does something in their heart. Because even Romans, we read this, right? With your heart, you believe. And with your mouth, you confess. You're saved. You've got to give people confessions. You've got to give people words to say. Because new Christians and, com and converting Christians never know what to say. How do I say yes to Jesus? Well, here's how you say yes. Anyway, that's a little off topic. Now we're going to talk about what, what Paul is getting into here in Romans chapter nine, uh, 12, verses 9 to 21. Because we first mentioned last week that he's talking about laying down your life, surrender. It looks like this, that you, um, you, know, you, you have a good estimation, a humble estimation of yourself. You see yourself as part of the body, and then you're actively engaged in serving the body. Now he's talking about, okay, when you want to get involved in the body, and every Christian should be involved in the body. Every Christian should be involved in a local church. I am 100% convinced of this. There is this new kind of like form of Christianity where we have watch parties and we watch our favorite celebrity pastor on YouTube and we think, okay, that's going to be our church. That's not church. Like you, you can you can do that to an extent when you're trying to like, you know, just kind of maybe find a church, but eventually you kind of want to get into a church where you can serve and love others, where you can use your gifts to serve others, where you can develop your gifts, where maybe you who knows who I'm talking to right now? You should be preaching one day. And I, you know how I got to this place? 
by being involved in the church. You know how I got to the place where I'm preaching on a regular basis and, and people get saved and, and through the Holy Spirit's ministry through me that they respond to Jesus and grow in Jesus? That happened because I was involved in the church. I was in the family of God. I was committed to other believers, even when they bugged me, even when they didn't like me, even when I had a hard time with them, even when there was friction. You cannot forsake the gathering of yourselves together. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about that. And so today we're going to talk about, in Romans chapter 12, how we get involved in the body in a way that God helps us grow and 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 guards us and shapes us for true Christian community. So with that in mind, let's talk about what it meant. Two uh, passages, two passages that we're going to concern ourselves with in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 16 and then verses 70 to 21. Verses 9 to 16 deal with this, what Christians do in relation to each other. So, so, so just table this as one side of the discussion. How should Christians um, relate to each other? Because that's kind of important. If you're going to be a part of the church, you got to know, well, how am I supposed to relate to these people? You think about it, when you join a church, you're in community now with a bunch of strangers you've never met. Well, you you got to figure out real fast uh, the nuances of that community. What, what are the expectations of that community? If you were to go into the army, they'd tell you real fast. Okay, this is what is expected. You're going to run this fast. You're going to run this far. You're going to eat these meals. You're going to sleep this time. You're going to wake up and you're going to go here and you're going to do that. I mean, now in the church, remember, we're, we are in some ways the army of God. We are in some ways in uh, boot camp the moment we get saved because we need to learn, okay, this is what the church does do. This is what the church doesn't do. And that is a process. But thank God we are not without a guide. And so really Romans 12 is kind of like boot camp for new Christians, boot camp for how to relate to your brother or sister in Christ. You are not without a guide. You are not without specifications. And Paul gives us that here in Romans chapter 12. Let's look at verse nine. Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. There it is. All starts with love. You want to talk about being in the faith? Love. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Let love in the church be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Okay, Paul, we get it. You got a ton of commandments here. These are imperatives in the Greek. Imperatives being, this is what you're supposed to do. Indicatives being, this is who you are. Well, these are a bunch. This is just a litany. Boom, 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 boom. He's like bullet listing all the things we're supposed to do to be Christians amongst each other. And the very first thing, what does he say? Uh, Let love be genuine. And that word uh, genuine in the Greek is any... Anipocritos, which is ah or without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy. What is genuine love? Well, John Stott puts it like this. The church must not ever turn itself into a stage. Oh, John Stott can really summate a, a verse of scripture. And I love that statement. The church must never turn itself into a stage. And I got to say, modern Christianity in America has just done that exact thing. Where everything is about your appearance, everything is about, you know, faking it, everything is about, like, appearing better or fighting for position or looking like, you know, the part of a, of a genuine Christian, but you're not genuine. Love is, in some, in some ways, in the modern Christian movement, love is what I call sloppy sentimentality sloppy sentimentality. And Paul is going to give us a couple of keys to what true love in the church looks like. Okay, first off, he says this, uh, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Uh, So there's two commandments that kind of define what genuine love looks like. And that means that genuine love looks like this. Genuine love discerns. You should actually just say that word out loud discerns. Yeah. Genuine love discerns what is good and what is evil. You cannot rightly love someone 
if you don't hate certain things regarding that person. Not the person, but certain things that they might do or certain things that you might do that are not good toward them. What I'm saying is any real true love for someone, it, it, it requires hatred of what hurts them or you. You cannot love a child rightly without hating them running into traffic. You cannot love your spouse rightly without hating the idea of them cheating on you. You you cannot love your brother and sister in Christ without abhorring what is evil. There are too many churches that tolerate evil. We'll get to that in just a moment. They tolerate things that hurt Christians, and they do it in the name of love. They do it in the sense of, well, I don't want to upset them. What? Upset them. You, what they're doing is hurting themselves. And it is so easy to fall into this trap where we all want to be liked by everybody. We all want to be like, you know, appreciated or we want to be celebrated. And not many people want to be discerning. They don't want to tell people, look, stop, stop this action. Now you say, wait a second, I don't have a comfortability with telling people what to do, what not to do. And, um, you know, that's, uh, something that you grow into as a Christian, but that's why God gives you elders and leaders and um, authority in the church. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. You've got to have a church that does a healthy bit of discipline. Church discipline is what keeps people on the straight and narrow. Several times my elders and I in our church have sat down with people and excommunicated them. We have, or we've told them, stop or you're, lo- you're, you're going to be excommunicated, disfellowshipped in a you know, nicer term. You need that because, all right, here's an, here's an example from my own pastoral care life. Uh, back about, oh, I don't know, 12 years ago, there was this older man, slightly overweight, and every time I saw him around the church, he was hanging around uh, 17 to 25-year-old women. And I had reports. This guy is always making some suggestive remarks. I warned him. We warned him again. And then we finally kicked him out because he wouldn't stop. And when he kicked, we kicked him out, he was not happy at all. But you know what we did? We abhorred what was evil. The predatory nature of his sexual advancements were evil. And we loved the ladies of our church and their purity. And we wanted to hold fast to what is good. You cannot properly love genuinely if you do not speak up against what is evil and warn people of what is evil and if necessary, root out the evil. Too much of church love is sloppy sentimentality. We are not the Hallmark Church. We are the Blood of Christ Church. And the Blood of Christ was hard. It was dirty. It hit the ground. It was truly shed. It caused pain. And sometimes the pain leads to progress in Christian discipleship. It's this idea, sloppy sentimentality, of I never want to do anything that causes you discomfort. But if you never discomfort anybody, they never change. And that's what has to happen in the church. And he's telling, Paul's telling the church, you got to hate what is evil and love what is good. And then he says, love one another with brotherly affection. Now, the, the NIV version of this says, be devoted. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, right? That's what this love one another with brotherly affection says in the NIV. Uh, let's talk about what it means to be devoted because you have two now D words concerning genuine love, discernment, hating good, uh, uh, loving good and hating evil, and then devotion. You're devoted to the people. And let me say that again very clearly. In your Christian family, you are devoted to the people because many Christians think they're devoted to the church and they're not. They're devoted to the 
physical realities of the church. They're devoted to the, their position and their gifts, or they're devoted to the stage or their importance, or they're devoted to their preference of how church should run and feel, or they're devoted to the style of the music that they like, or the kind of preacher that they like, and they leave when things change. And I have seen this happen over 24 years of pastoral ministry, that people will leave over stupid little things that we change that are not the people, that are not the people. No, no, no. And they leave, and this is what happens. And I'll tell you, just warnings for young Christians. When you leave a church, you leave the people. And this is what happens so often in church life. People leave over, okay, they changed the music or they changed the style or they changed, who knows, stupid little stuff. They changed where the church was located. They changed the color of the carpet. I don't know, stupid stuff, right? Then they don't realize that when they leave the church because of the physical plant of the church, they've also left the people and then they want to be connected to the people after that to the church over the physical plant stuff. And that's not right because you have just turned your back on the whole body of Christ, but now you miss the people and the connections. And that's not fair. That's not right. That's not good. And you've done it to yourself. And that's not healthy. You've got to be devoted to the people and let the externals, the external realities just change. It's okay. I, I mean, I understand. I understand we all like certain music. I understand we all like certain, I don't know, Bible versions. I understand even in our comments on this cha- on this channel, I got people who always because I don't think I said it exactly right. Okay, fine. Can we just like agree to disagree and love Jesus? Like, can we love one another? Can we be devoted to one another and not be devoted to our preferences that are not essential, that are not salvific issues? Like, I was in a conversation with a guy a couple of nights ago about the end times, and he was pre-trib. And you know, you guys know me. I'm post-trib. I'm post-trib, baby. I believe we'll get through. But you know what? He was very gracious and I was gracious to him and we can disagree about that because that doesn't matter that ultimately does not get us saved now I pray that he's right because I don't want to go through the tribulation but if I'm right I'm praying for him to be strong right uh but the point is is that you got to be devoted to each other not to the external realities of the church then he says outdo one another Oh, goodness, look at this, in showing honor. Holy smokes, guys, check this out. He's saying, guys, in the church, I want the church to have a competition. I want to play a little game. Who can outdo each other in showing honor to one another? Who can out-honor each other? And by that, I mean not gaining honor for yourself, but showing honor to other people. Your pastor has a hard job. If you're in another church, listen to me very carefully. Your pastor has another hard, hard job. Are you showing him honor? And I am not talking about idolizing him. There's a ton of idolization in the church with regards to the pastor. I'm just talking about showing him honor. What does that mean? Trust him. Respect him. He might know some things, and he might see some things that you don't know. And then just beyond your pastor, how about your fellow brothers and sisters? Can you show them honor? Can you, can you try to show them deference and respect so that they feel like they are honored by you? Hey, man, honor is healthy. When I feel honored, I feel good. I feel strong. I don't feel proud. And honor is just saying, look, I think you're valuable. That's what it means. It doesn't mean I think you're special. It says I think you're valuable. I think what you bring to the table is so good and so necessary, and I just want to tell you how much I appreciate that. That's showing honor. Outdo honor. Like, that's, the, that's what we should be trying to outdo. We always try to outdo each other in trying to position ourselves for importance and paul says no try to try to do this try to outdo one another in showing honor and deference in philippians he says always consider others more important than yourself whoa that's really hard but that's really good it's really godly and then last thing he says in this in this text do not be slothful in zeal but fervent in spirit and serve the lord can i tell you guys that the enemy wants to steal your zeal and can i ask you has he done it 
Has he stolen your zeal? Has the enemy stolen your zeal? Did, did you used to be more passionate than you are right now? Did you used to be more, you know, excited to go to church than you are right now? It's a good chance that the, that the enemy, unfortunately, has stolen your zeal, and that's not a good place to be. Paul commands us, don't lose that. Don't be slothful in zeal, but then also be fervent in the Spirit. And what I think that means is ask the Holy Spirit to come in and fill you. Ask the Holy Spirit to come into your body and, and saturate you with the power and the love and the goodness of Jesus Christ. And I think that that's going to make a difference in how you serve. And I can tell you, just praying, Father, fill me with the Holy Spirit, that prayer is always answered. That's always answered because Paul, Jesus says in Luke, he says, if you ask for the Holy Spirit, the Lord's never going to say no. The Father's never going to say no. He's going to fill you with the Holy Spirit. And you might not feel, you might not feel the Holy Spirit goosebumps up and down your arm, but the Holy Spirit will come in and he will start to change how you feel and how you sense things around you and how you respond to stimuli against you. Okay. Wow. That was just the first, what, two verses, three verses, nine, 10, 11. Let's go to, nah, let's go to verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Now, these are, again, commandments for the, co- for the community. So contribute to the needs of the, need of the saints. See how he's still talking to the community, how we re- relate to each other. And seek to show hospitality. And verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And we will sideline verse 14 for just a moment later. Ho- rejoice in hope. The church must gather as a celebration atmosphere. I do not understand. I do not have tolerance for churches that are boring and dried and stuffy because they think that being miserable for Jesus is holy. I just don't have any patience for that. There should be hope every time we gather. There should be joy every time we are around each other because our hope is not wishful thinking. Our hope is not, gosh, I hope I get that house. I hope I get that car. I hope I get that job. No, no. It's the blessed hope. It's Titus 2.13, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is settled. Hope is fixed on Jesus's return. And that, my friends, is what gets us through this idea of tribulation. Because no matter how good of a Christian you are, tribulation will come. Be patient in tribulation. By the way, he's not talking about the great tribulation. He's just talking about normal ups and downs of life. Okay, and then how do I get through that tribulation? Be constant in prayer. Don't ever stop praying. So many Christians turn to Google before they turn to prayer. So many Christians turn to friends before they turn to prayer. So many Christians turn to, you know, self-help books at, you know, whatever Amazon's selling rather than prayer. Prayer is your access point to the throne room of grace, the throne room of mercy, the throne room of God's power. And before you Google it or before you research or before you discuss with somebody else, can I ask you to pray about it? Because the scripture says, don't be anxious for anything but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Make your request known to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Like that's, that's what you need to do. Waking up at night, can't sleep, get down on your knees and pray. Can't get through the some meeting, pray over it. Ask God to speak through you and to you, right? This is, this is how we get through the tribulation. And then verse 13. Contribute to the needs. Be generous. But notice, the, contribu- the contribution is first where? To the needs of the saints. Don't be giving your money to non-believers first. Don't do that. Uh-uh. Contribute to your brother and sister in Christ. And then do so with discernment. Because I have been doing this business long enough to understand that there are some people who will take advantage of generosity. They will become, and I hate to use this term, but they will become... Um, slaves of your generosity 
And you've got to watch out for the measure in which you contribute. Contribute to their needs, not the continuance of their irresponsibility. So there's going to be some Christians that just cannot manage their money. The answer to them is not give them more money. The answer to them is to get them in a program wherein they learn the biblical principles around financial management. Right, that's how you help contribute to their need. Their need is not more money. Their need is to know how to handle the money they ha- that they have. And then he says this: seek. Look at this: seek to show hospitality. And hospitality just means have people over, have people over. Let people in on your home. Let people in on your life. Don't be a stranger to the saints. And this is why so many Christians look so much like the world because they are strangers to the saints. They are not connected to the body of Christ. And we've, we, we will not thrive, we will not grow, we will not develop as Christians if we do not have intimate, hospitable relationships with each other. Amen. So all that is important for the body of Christ. It is essential to live in such a way as we are hopeful, prayerful, generous, with discernment, by the way, and hospitable. And we move into verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Let's stop there. <laughs> because here's what we're here's what Paul's talking about. Christians are emotionally connected toward each other. We are what he means when he says, uh, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, he is saying, be emotional in here. Like get up in your emotions, okay, to cry with your brother and sister in Christ. And it's a good thing to rejoice with those who experience goodness in their life. Now, I will tell you that over the course of your life, this rejoicing with those who rejoice is going to be a heck of a lot easier than this. (laughs) I want you to ask why. Why do you think, I want to ask you why. Why do you think, and let me know in the comments below, why do you think it would be easier to weep with those who weep than to rejoice with those who rejoice? Okay, I'm going to give you the answer because I can't wait. We sometimes let jealousy or envy or covetousness stop us from rejoicing with the Christian brother or sister who gets the thing that they wanted or gets the baby or gets the house or, you know, gets the promotion. And it's like, I want to rejoice, but I'm kind of wondering why God gave it to them and not to me. Like that, that's just, again, not showing honor. That's not being a Christian. That's being a jealous thief. That's what Cain had a problem with. And then he says this, oh, so before we move on, you got to learn how to celebrate the wins in other people's lives and not take it personally when it doesn't happen to you, but it happens to somebody else. That's what he's saying. Don't take it personally when it doesn't happen to you. That's okay. God has a plan for you. Remember when Peter is walking with Jesus on the road to restoration in, Luke, in John chapter 21, and, and, and Jesus says, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs. And then Peter looks back and he sees John, the beloved disciple, walking back. And he goes, hey, what about him, Jesus? And Jesus is like, hey, if I want him to remain until I'm alive until I come back again, what's that to you? You follow me. You got to learn to let God have a way with your life and not obsess about what God might be doing or how God might be blessing someone else's life. That's just a fact. That's just a fact. And that's going to take a time of growth and development and maturity. And the people who need maturity are the people who don't know how to celebrate the wins in other people. It's just a fact. You got to learn how to celebrate the wins in other people and not let it be a personal attack against you for why you don't have what they have. Verse 16, live in harmony with each other. The Greek sentence literally reads like this. Think the same things toward one another. 
Be of the same mind. Live in agreement with one another. And I would say that sometimes, and I say this very carefully because I don't want to give you an excuse to do it, but sometimes you cannot serve in a church that you don't agree with. And sometimes there is a time to go your separate ways. There's got to be agreement. The same mind. What kind of church are you going to? Are you going to a church that refuses to celebrate? Are you going to a church that refuses to show honor? Are you going to a church that's all about the stage, all about importance, all about precision, all about looking better in the eyes of other people, the exact opposite things of what Paul's been talking about in Romans chapter 12? then you might need to leave the church. You might need to find a church where you can uh, live in harmony toward one another. And finally, in verse 16, he says, don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So a couple of months ago, it all broke out with, you know, Hillsong, New York, a year ago, two years ago with Hillsong, New York and Carl Lentz. But he was hanging around celebrities and then I, and, and, and the news broke that they had this VIP section for their church. And I covered the Hillsong documentary, and you can go check that video out. We'll put it in the description or in the comments below about how you can check that out after this episode. But I think that the, that the, the, the chain started to break when they started to have a VIP section for their celebrities. Now, let me stop everybody right now who in the comments wants to talk about all the other ways in which Hillsong is ungodly. Please stop. Please stop. I'm sick of your self-righteous comments. Okay, Hillsong is a church that loves Jesus by and large. They have some leaders that fell. They have some leaders that had problems. Stop looking down your nose at them before it happened to you. I'm just so tired of the sanctimonious Christians out there who just look at every church that doesn't do church the way they do it, and they just judge them from afar and threaten law bombs and say they're not godly, and that's why they uh, had that happen. I have seen over the last 10 years strict Reformed pastors fall into immorality and loosey-goosey charismatic Pentecostals fall into immorality. The same sin nature is in all of us, and we all need God's grace to help sustain us in righteousness. Stop. Stop it with the comments and stop it with the criticism of Hillsong that are beyond what is clearly sinful activity. Anyway, sinful activity though, back to our point is <laughs> VIP sections for your church should not be a thing. In fact, that should not be a thing it's for celebrities. Celebrities need to learn how to do what Paul is saying here. Learn how to associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. You know why? Because you aren't. You're never as wise as you think you are. The entire book of Proverbs is talking to people and saying, if you want to be wise, consider yourself a fool. Because when you think that you are wise, you're actually a fool. That's pretty much the entire book of Proverbs. Anyway connected to each other. That's what Paul's talking about here. And, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, remember he's writing from Corinth to Rome. And he says, this makes for harmony. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 25. This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. If one part is honored, all the parts are glad. We're members of one another. We must care for one another and celebrate with another, one another and sometimes weep with one another. Then Paul shifts the gears. In Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, verse, uh, we, we were just at verse, where were we? 16. So now in verse 17, he's going to shift the gears and he's going to talk about this content. What Christians do in response to enemies. What do Christians do in response to the people that hate them? What do Christians do in response to the people who are against them? And now let me just say something very, very clearly. Lean in. Lean in. Get closer to the screen. Are you ready? Church will always have enemies from the outside and from the inside. There will be people who attack the church from the outside. I think that that one's like a no-brainer. We all see those people coming. Can I tell you the people that we don't see coming? The people on the inside. The people on the inside. So when we talk about response to a Christian's enemies, can we acknowledge first that even in the book of Acts, we see 
throughout the narrative of the book of Acts. And I did the whole book of Acts on this channel and you can go back and look it up and we'll put it in the description below the playlist for the book of Acts. There was attacks from right away from outside, right? When the religious leaders are telling Peter and John, don't preach this name anymore. You know, we're going to imprison you. We're going to kill you. There's Herod killing James, Herod imprisoning Peter. There's external enemies. Then the far more subversive enemy in the church is the internal enemy, the Ananias and Sapphira's, the false Christians, the fake disciples. Nehemiah had this problem too. He's attacked from without by the foreign nations around Israel as he's trying to rebuild the wall. And then he's attacked from within, Sanballat, Tobiah, and um, Aram. And they come in from within and they try to subversively uh, populate the the people of God to bring about a real... um, evil spirit within the church. Now, let me just say something. I'm going to put this on the screen first. I would say that the outside enemies of the church, obviously pagans, pagans, and I mean the people who worship everything except Jesus and they hate Jesus, okay? Idolaters, these are people who make sex, drugs, rock and roll, the whole thing, everything's amazing. And you know, you got to watch out for these people. We do that on the deep end, right? Immoral culture, we do that on the deep end too. You know, we talk about all the people that are just pervasively pushing the stuff on us. And I would call this aggressive perversion as well. So outside external uh, enemies are very obvious. There is an inside list that you need to be aware of that Jesus was extremely hard on. Religious elitists, fake Christians, and false prophets and false teachers. Religious elitists, fake Christians, and false teachers and prophets. Read Matthew 23 when you get a chance and look at how Jesus talks about the woes to the scribes, the Pharisees, the hypocrites, the people who were fake, the religious elitists. He says, you travel across, this is verse 15, you travel across land and sea. You want to make a single disciple and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice the sign of hell as you are. Mm. Them's fighting words. Them strong. <laughs> I have First Timothy chapter 1 open here on the Bible can because Paul says, first thing he says to young Timothy, the pastor of Ephesus, is this. I urge you when I was going on to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. When you talk about charging certain persons not to teach different doctrine, man, that takes guts to confront and stop the different doctrine enemies in the church. Then look at this. Oh, gosh, my word. Look at this. Down at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, he says this, this, this charge, verse 18, I entrust to you, Timothy, in accordance with the prophecies uh, previously made about you, wage the good warfare, holding faith, good conscience by rejecting this. Some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to who? Satan. Satan. Not the counseling committee. Not some other brother or sister. I haven't handed these people over to, you know, this little group of people. Oh, they, 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 were, they caused trouble in this small group. Let's put them over here in this small group. No, I handed them over to Satan that they might not learn to blaspheme. Whoa, those are strong words. Here's what I want to say about enemies from within and enemies from without. This is the number one mistake we make. Are you ready? This is the number one mistake we make. We give the enemies outside and inside the same treatment. And they must never, ever receive the same treatment. Are you following me here? Because we are supposed to love our enemies. But when the enemies are in the church, man, we got to be completely different in our take on those issues. One of the things that I have seen happen with inside enemies is this. Oftentimes, inside enemies, religious elitists, fake Christians, false teachers, and prophets often are tolerated in love. 
And the argument goes like this. Oh, you know, we're supposed to love them and I don't want to cause division. And I know that they speak heresy, but they really love the church and they love the people. Sometimes they're an Absalom. Sometimes they're uh, Ananias and Sapphira. Sometimes they just want to use the church for their own promotion. And we got to have strong leaders and elders and people who will say, enough, you're not doing that here. Remember that one of the strongest rebukes in the book of Revelation for one of the seven churches in the first three chapters is written to Thyatira, the church of Thyatira. And Jesus says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. She calls herself a prophetess. She's teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality. You've got to get this woman out or consider First Corinthians chapter 5 when the man was sleeping with his father's wife. And Paul says, hand this man over to Satan. No, don't try to counsel him. No, don't try to fix him. No, don't try to like disciple him. Hand him over to Satan. This is something that even pagans think is disgusting. Watch out for people who cause division. Romans chapter 16, 17. We'll get to that. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and put obstacles in your way. Like, watch out for people who divide the church, who label, uh, you know, their group, the insider group. Watch out for cliques. Watch out for people not stepping outside their comfort zone relationally because that's clicky and that's not what the church must do or be. So when we talk about, listen very carefully, back to the big point here in Romans chapter 12. There are outside enemies and there are inside enemies and they should not receive the same treatment. They got to be treated differently. Why? Because they are different. And what Paul is going to get to in Romans chapter 12, he's talking to external enemies. Please understand that. So these rules that he unpacks in Romans 12, 14 and 70 to 21 are not for false believers, religious elitists. And what was that third category they put up there? Fake Christians. This is for those external enemies. This is how Christians respond to the people outside the church who hate the church. Let's go to the text. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and don't curse. We are not the cursing people, we are the blessing curse people. We don't curse even the people inside church that are enemies. We, we bless people, though, who are outside of us and curse us. Verse 17, repay no one for evil. And then look at this little qualifier, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. How do I do this in such a way that the community will see that I am living honorably even though they aren't, right? Verse 18, if possible, two qualifiers, if possible, and so far as it depends on you, what? Live peacefully or peaceably with all. This is so important, and you gotta understand these two qualifiers are essential because sometimes it's not possible and sometimes it's not depending on you. Sometimes there are just some people that will fight, 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 and there's nothing you can do, and you gotta just turn and walk away. You just gotta ignore. Pastor, should I ignore my sister who always wants to pick a political fight with me around Thanksgiving? Maybe. Mm. Pastor, should I uh, ignore the guy at church, uh, at work, who just wants to like strike up the conversation that we're all gonna get into a big fight about in front of everybody? Yes, yes. You can't be fighting all the time, Christians. You can't be picking fights all the time. There is a time to fight. Yes, there is a time to disagree lovingly. And even with your enemies, there is a time to have a back and forth that might get passionate, but you have to have it out with them. And yet at the same time, you got to do it in a way that's honorable. You got to do it in a way that's good and healthy. Then he says in verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves. And this is hard. This is hard, but leave it to the wrath of God. You know, when, when God says, to Abraham, he says, I'll bless those who curse you and I'll, I'm sorry, I'll bless those who bless you and I'll, man, did I ruin that text. I will bless those who bless you, he says in Genesis 12, and I'll curse those who curse you. We are not cursing people, we are blessing people. Why? Are you ready? This is the best news ever because God's better at cursing than you. 
you your cursing's got nothing on God's cursing. I mean, he is an expert. He can curse and it's a fixed curse. Okay. And what I'm trying to tell you is when you hurt, he hurts and he feels it and he stores up wrath. And that's what scripture says. He is storing up wrath on the day of judgment. And he even says it here in this text, leave it to the wrath of God for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord to the contrary. So now, now, now look now that you know that your enemy is going to get taken care of from the Lord if he doesn't repent. Here's what you do. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. He's quoting from Proverbs here. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Can we just talk about one thing real quick? No matter how committed you are to Jesus, there will always be someone attacking you. In fact, if people are attacking you more, it might be because you are seriously committed to Jesus. Like, that's okay. It's okay to get attacked. You know, you're not doing something wrong necessarily. But when the attacks come, don't curse. Don't try to hurt that's not who you are why because you were once if we go back to romans 5 verse 10 you were once at enmity with god why and verse 8 while we were yet sinners christ died for us in other words while we were doing what he didn't want us to do he died for us and jesus loved his enemies in saving us and so we love our enemies as saved people of jesus that's how it rolls that's what christians do so you don't curse, you don't, you know, you don't repay evil, you don't take revenge, and you don't get, you don't let evil be something that overcomes you in your life. Let's just talk about that one little text there. Uh, doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. There's a lot of textual criticism about that, a lot of contextual criticism about that text. Some people interpret that to be that um, the Egyptians they would carry hot coals, you know, to their home to heat their stoves, and you know, heaping hot coals was not a way of burning them up. It was a way of actually even helping them more. So he's not saying do this good stuff to like really stick it to him. No, he's not saying that. He's saying you're 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 gonna help like heat their heart up, that heat their life up. Maybe your blessing will turn into their getting saved. And isn't that really what we want, even for our enemies? Isn't that what we really want? I think so. And we'll talk about an example in just a moment. At the end of the day, remember that Jesus said in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, not the war makers. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the conflict creators. They shall be called sons of God. Now let's talk about what it means. What it means is this. We've been talking about the why and the what of surrender, right? We talked about this last week, and we're going to pick it up this week. And what he's talking about is a portrait of Christian relationships within the church and then a portrait of Christian relationships outside of the church. So what should our portrait of Christian relationships look like in the church? First, genuine. Second, discerning. Um, Third, devoted to it. You're committed to the church. You honor other people. You are passionate, never lacking in zeal. You are hopeful. You are enduring. You know that even though life might stink right now, Jesus is coming back and it will all be made right and he will wipe every tear from your eye. You are generous. You are hospitable. This is what a church should look like when we relate to each other. This is boot camp, guys. This is boot camp. Okay, so you're not faking it. You're not just saying you love people. You're actually loving people. You're giving yourself. You're surrendering your rights to have special, solid relationships. And I said on the deep end yesterday, and I didn't complete the thought, so I want to complete the thought today. Any successful relationship requires sacrifice. Any successful relationship requires you saying no to this so that you can say yes to this relationship. A marriage is like that. Kids are like that. Job is like that. 
all of them. Okay, you want to work somewhere and thrive, you got to say no to all these other opportunities to say yes to that. You want to be married, you got to say no to all these other people to say yes to this person. That's what it's like in the church. A lot of people don't want to do this. They want to take out iPhone Jesus and walk and do their own thing. And then they wonder why they look just like the world because the iPhone Jesus does not confront, just just reflects, just, just, just does the FaceTime mirror back on them. Uh, and that is and, and that is how it goes for a lot of Christians. Now, boot camp is these seven key portrait qualities of Christian relationships. Let's talk about a portrait of external relationships. This is what Paul is talking about in verse 17 to 21. So we are peacemaking. We seek peace at all costs, as much as it depends on us. When it doesn't, we walk away. When it can't be fixed, we walk away. Returning good for evil. We don't, we don't curse. We actually bless. And you know what? Try it. You haven't done it yet. Try it. Okay. Number three, trust in God's justice. He'll take care of those who hate you. He will retribute those who persecute. And number four, even serving our enemy, even serving our enemy. Okay. Now the church in the first century did this and God transformed the Roman empire through them loving their enemies as they were being killed, as they were being burned alive, as they were being crucified. They prayed for their enemies. That's what, Paul, that's what Jesus models for us on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And to the cursing and then suddenly repentant thief on his side. Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus models for us how we're supposed to treat those outside of the church. And remember, back to my thought, you don't treat enemies outside the same way you treat enemies inside. Enemies inside need to be rebuked. They need to be sometimes uh, removed. They need to be challenged. They need to be confronted and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to the outside external relationships, we got do whatever we can to do the four things here. Make peace, return good for evil, trust God's justice, and serve even our enemy. Can I recommend a book for you? This book changed my life. I read this book about, oh, I want to say 2015. I think I read it. So that was about two, seven, seven years ago. Louis Zamperini was an incorrigible child in Southern California. He became an Olympic runner, went to war in World War II, was a prisoner of war, and was tortured and beaten ruthlessly by an infamous Japanese commander named The Bird. That was his nickname, The Bird. And uh, Laura Hillenbrand wrote a book called Unbroken. I cannot recommend this book enough. You've got to read this, but it will change your life. Powerful. Now, please, please, please promise me that you will not watch the movie because the movie is not that good. And Angelina, directed, Angelina Jolie directed the movie and it ends at a stupid, pointless moment. It really does. I'm just like, the story's not over. Like, it ends with the war being over and him, like, lifting up this log and, like, oh, everybody's like, oh, look at him standing there lifting up the log. Like, that's not the whole story. That was not the redemption of Louis Zamperini. And they do kind of, like, do a little thing at the end, a little line. And I know some of you are going to click along there and say they did a part two to the movie and, you know, but it was a Christian movie and it wasn't that good. Okay, I'm just going to be honest with you. <laughs> Read the book. Books are better than movies all the time. They are always better than movies. So this guy, you know, he... Um, went into the war he was tortured brutally for i think a year at the hands of this guy the bird came home turned to alcohol ptsd the whole thing he was abusive to his wife he was suicidal he was an alcoholic and he went to a billy graham crusade at the behest of his wife billy graham preaches christ he wants nothing to do with it and he's about to walk out and billy graham just strikes this moment with the guy not directly but just says something and he flashes back to when he was stranded on a raft in the middle of the pacific ocean that he said if lord if you would save me from this mess i will serve you with the rest of my life and he walked down to the front of that crusade at billy graham's crusade in southern california gave his life to jesus christ and made a miraculous transformation and then he even went back he even went back this is so powerful to the very captors 
that he was under in Japan and preached the gospel of Jesus to them, greeted them, loved them, shook their hand at Sugamo prison and said, believe in Jesus and have everlasting life. I forgive you and he forgives you. I mean, my friends, only Jesus can do that. By the way, he eventually did find out that the bird was alive and he had been living in exile and Louis Zamperini sought him out. Oh my gosh, I'm totally ruining the whole book for you, but I'll just tell you, just skip this if you don't want to hear it. He sought him out to meet him, tell him about Jesus. The bird refused. Louis sent him a letter saying, I would that you would receive Jesus and spend eternity with him and me. I mean, that, that kind of forgiveness, when you think about the horrors, read the book because I haven't really ruined hardly anything. The horrors that he uh, experienced at the hands of the bird and to want that guy to come to know Jesus and go to heaven. God only can do that kind of transformation in someone's heart. God only. So what does surrender look like? We talked about humility, community, and activity last week. We're talking about genuine love this week, and we're talking about peacemaking this as well as this week. So genuine love amongst the brother, brothers and sisters in Christ and peacemaking with those outside of it. In sum, what it means is the church must cultivate a culture. The, must church, the church must cultivate a culture of genuine love while responding to external hatred with peace as much as possible. They will know, Jesus said, we are Christians by our love for one another. So if we're not loving each other, they won't know we're Christians. They won't know. And the first century church was marked by a, a, an eternal steadfast love for each other. And they cared for each other. In fact, the Romans used to call them incestuous because they would marry their brothers and sisters of Christ. They would refer to people as brothers and sisters. And then they would marry each other because they weren't brothers and sisters biologically. Well, except through Adam and Eve and Noah. But, you know, they weren't that close. But they would marry each other because they were that close. They were like family. And it was strong. And it was very visible. And the world took notice. And it changed the Roman Empire. And then, of course, the Christians got power in the Roman Empire. And then power corrupts everything, even the church and, you know, the rest of the story. So on and on it goes. This is the problem with the church. We just got to love one another and we got to have a, a, a peaceful mindset to those outside the church when they hate us. Why does it matter? Summing up, guys, the church is this. Are you ready? A messy and challenging yet vital and essential community seeking to exemplify the love of God among its members and to our world. That's why it matters. They will know we are Christians by our love for one another. And yes, if you spend five minutes in the church, it's messy, it's challenging. You got just five minutes. You might come to my church, you might go to another church and it looks from the outside, it looks great. My, my memory serves me of that old song by Bette Midler, from a distance, the world looks green and white, you know? But when you get close, there's war, there's factions, there's division. The church is the same way, from a distance. Here's the church, here's the people, right? Here's the church, here's the people. Open the doors and see all the messy, challenging people. Seriously, that's the church. It's, it's, but at the same time, it's an essential community. It's essential and vital to your life. You cannot do iPhone Jesus. You cannot do iPhone church. It cannot change you and challenge and confront you and shape you the way that God can shape you through his body. Last week we talked about this. The hand cannot say to the foot, I don't need you. You do need that foot. You do need that member. You do need that body of Christ. You do need that elder. The gifts of the church, the apostle, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, those are given to you to build you up. And that so that you might grow in love and exemplify that love to the world. And hopefully that happens more and more, the closer and closer we get to Jesus's return. That's the episode, guys. Like the video, please do me a favor and like the video, share it, subscribe. I would appreciate that so much. Would you please consider supporting the channel as well? The Cash App, Tim Hatch Live or TimHatchLive.com support. Thank you so much for tuning in. And next week, we don't have the deep end. We I don't know if we'll have to deep dive, got to be honest with you. No, we probably won't. But we will have 
10 Questions with Tim, which I think is like your favorite video of the entire channel. It's the one that gets the most views anyway. And I love it myself because you ask me questions and I answer them. So ask at timhatchlive.com uh, or in the comments below. Uh, and it's the first Thursday, which is next week, believe it or not, a week from tomorrow. So I hope you have a great Wednesday night. I hope this content has helped you. And I hope you'll tune back in next time we are live on the channel. Until then, God bless you, everybody. 